This is going to be very participatory, so I think we have the right crowd. Woohoo! Um, and also, it's 4 o'clock on Friday, so we know what that means. <laughs> and we're very grateful to have you here and to have your attention, but we'll do our best to make sure we are serious when we need to be serious and hilarious when we need to be hilarious, right? So um, I'm going to get us started um, with the session. Hopefully this is the one you plan to be in. Um, we're going to be focusing on picking your high-priority project. Um, a little bit about who we are. My name is Cinnamon Catlin Legutko, and I'm the president and CEO of the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor, Maine. My colleague Stacy is with me. We're going to talk a little bit more about ourselves here in a minute. Um, but before we get started, I want to gauge the audience. Um, how many of you are leaders of small museums? Raise your hand. Interesting. Not even half. Okay. But are, huh? How many of them work? Well, I was going to say that next. <laughs> how many of y'all work in small museums but aren't necessarily leaders? Right? So there's a couple of oddballs. <laughs> We're glad you're here because you'll enrich the conversation. Um, you may or may not know that Stacey and I are also co-editors of the Small Museum Toolkit. Um, quick shameless plug, it's a six book series that was published by Altamira Press. Hey, thank you, thank you very much, we're very proud of that work. Um, <laughs> and as we have been exploring the topics for, gosh, over five years now, we've been thinking about the stuff that ended up in the, six, we're on six years, from you know project inception to putting it to bed to then going into this speaker circuit, if you will, about topics explored in the series, um, we started to realize that there's maybe something else we need to talk about. And, um, and it's more about what it means to be a leader in a small museum, what it means to be a leader in general, but certainly in a smaller organization where you're crunched for time, you're crunched for resources, you just don't get a lot of opportunity to think about leadership and what it means to be a good leader and how to refill, if you will, your leadership toolkit because that's kind of a critical element if you're going to accomplish all the things you hope to accomplish. So what can that be distilled to? We started talking about and came up with a strategy for prioritizing work. Um, this, I will say, this session is probably the, is this the fourth time we've done this in a various and sundry iterations together, separate and otherwise? So we've been refining and refining, and when we first started exploring this topic, we, we devoted our time together to really talk about leadership, and we've actually pulled back on that because we found that people want time together to talk about their projects and priorities. So the bulk of our time is that, and if we... Um, at the end, have a balance of time available. We'll dig into some leadership, but we've just found everybody wants to dig in to this worksheet that we're going to give you um, and help each other negotiate um, some opportunities and some challenges that you have. Let me see where I am. So this kind of gives you the session goals. We're going to think a little bit about good leadership. The way we're going to start that is by introducing ourselves through our leadership awareness lens, if you will. Um, you're going to learn to prioritize work. We have an activity, as I've alluded to. Um, and then we're going to hopefully inspire you to take action in your small museum or in your community um, to really make a difference. So some tips for becoming a better leader. This slide you'll see again later if we have time. Um, we have a handout that if I'm not mistaken, list all this on it, so don't furiously, it's all in the center of your table. Everything we're going to talk about is summarized on handouts on your table. We've done some work for you because we believe small museums need shortcuts 
we've done some shortcuts for you. Um, so just keep that in mind as you take notes. But um, we thought the best way to maximize our time together was introduce ourselves through a tip. So as I said, my name is Cinnamon. I work in a museum off the coast of Maine. It is technically a medium-sized museum in terms of budget size, but um, when I was doing this work, I truly was working in a small museum, and I'm still a, a massive uh, small museum enthusiast. <laughs> Some say I have other massive issues like ego and otherwise, but I'm also quite funny, so it's okay. Um, <laughs> it's Friday at 4. Um, so what... Um, that all means is that I work in a smaller, smaller institution than most, but what for, for me, the small museum work I've been doing, I've been able to apply to a medium-sized format, which has been great. You get work done faster. Um, these same ideas and concepts we're giving you will, quite frankly, apply in any size of institution, but we're trying to focus on small museum needs. So a little bit about myself as a leader. Um, when you look at this list of tips for becoming a better leader, I think the one that's been most important for you, and probably this point you would agree, is um, to be self-aware <laughs> about who you are as an individual. Know what your strengths are. Own it. Um, pay attention to it. Talk about it with colleagues and peers. Um, consider how people perceive you, and you'll get further because you'll adjust. You'll correct. You'll respond to how somebody's reacting to you. I know that I'm a very assertive person because I've... I've gone through a lot of skills assessments, through a lot of um, um, peer coaching, a lot of um, discussion. Feedback from your friends. Feedback, therapy. Um, I know I'm very assertive, and it makes people uncomfortable sometimes, but I know what I want, and I'm going to get it. So for me to be aware of that, I know also that to get what I need to get from my organization, I also need to be sensitive to how people perceive me. So that has been really my most important tip to help me be a successful leader. You may pick another one, and I encourage you to do so. And really, if you have no time at the end of your day, but you can at least focus on one thing that you want to keep learning about yourself and dig in deeper, um, we hope through this, this quick little introduction we encourage you to do that. I'm going to hand it to Stacy to do hers and let her talk, quite frankly. She sometimes lets me talk, not, not always. Um, my name is Stacy Klingler. I'm currently the Assistant Director of Local History Services at Indiana Historical Society, which means I spend most of my time out and about with smaller institutions around the state. Uh, I started out um, volunteering in small museums and then as the Assistant Director of some small museums and then finally a director, and then they snatched me away with benefits uh, to the big, the, the big house uh, in Indianapolis, as it were. Um, I don't think of myself as sort of a natural-born leader. I remember hanging out with my friends in elementary school and arguing about who was going to have to ask for the candy at the snack bar. I didn't really want to talk with people. Um, I, I prefer kind of solitary pursuits. I thought I might be an architect or an accountant. And then I started hanging out with people a little more. I think, well, maybe I'll be a counselor. And I ended up getting a degree in developmental psychology, research psychology. Um, and I realized that unless I wanted to sense, spend my time with two-year-olds and rubber duckies and prepositions for the rest of my life, I needed to find something else. Um, and I found museums, and I was so glad to find this space. But in small museums, it's rare that you are not, that, that you've got to be a leader. There's nobody else to do it. I mean, even if you're the second person in a two-man house, you're going to end up leading volunteers 
and ultimately um, leading your your field in the state. I think it's just a it's something you're going to have to stumble into. So I have been comforted <laughs> by the idea that leaders are not born, they are made. Some people have certain skills, have certain charisma, have certain opinions and assertiveness that make them um, sort of, I would say, more likely to go into leadership roles. Um, but for those of you who might feel like, oh, I prefer to be in the background, I don't want to be the one up there on the podium talking into the microphone, cracking jokes, you never know. Um, there, leadership is a skill. It's something you can go out and learn and learn about. Um, and my, so my tip uh, is manage your emotions. Uh, I happen to be a very emotional person. I can cry at the drop of a hat. Um, AT&T commercials, uh, really anything. Um, <laughs> but when, when we sort of think about that in um, a leadership role, it tends to be anger and frustration that are the emotions you have to control because somebody maybe let you down or something didn't work out the way you wanted to. And so with my psychology background, I really think about that kind of anger, frustration reaction as a fight or flight re um, response. We get angry and we, we create fear um, in people around us and people choose to fight or choose to, to flee us. They avoid you know, confronting things or they attack. And one of our jobs is to create a space where that doesn't happen to happen, where you can create a safe space to have conversation because otherwise you are just an alpha leader. You're the alpha dog. You are being feared by people, and that's why they follow you. But that's not where we get our power um, as human beings. We get our power by bringing our brain power together, bringing our knowledge together and creating something new. Um, so I've been reading a great book called Crucial Conversations, by Carrie Patterson um, that is really about how to create that space for that safe conversation. Um, and one of my favorite tips from there is if you're talking about a situation, if you're thinking about a situation and the other person is a villain and you are a hero, you have failed to understand the situation. <laughs> Rarely does that happen. If you can assume in any situation that the other people involved are acting rationally and reasonably according to the information they have, then you're far more likely to be able to share the information around so that everyone gets the solution they're looking for. And so if you can hold back that anger and frustration um, and let it seep away so that you don't scare people off, um, you have the possibility to be a great leader. So I just wanted to bring that book up because yeah, you know it's what I'm, what I'm reading now. And full disclosure, too, Stacy and I used to work together. <laughs> so you've probably picked up on the fact that we have different styles. Um, but they melded well together to get the job done. Um, so what I'm going to do now is lead us into the crux of the discussion today. Talking about priority sectors, we've divided up this conversation. I'm going to set up the stage, if you will, and then Stacy's going to take over with a couple to tell you about. And then I'll... Um, I'll take a couple to tell you about, and then we're going to do an activity around these four sectors. <clears throat> um, so obviously we can tell you tips until um, we're blue in the face, but how do you translate 
tips about leadership into um, characteristics for strategic leadership in your small museum. How many of you have ever found yourself completely overwhelmed by the work in front of you? Raise your hand, yeah. It's, it's a crippling feeling, isn't it? It can be suffocating, it can be uh, very uninspirational. You might find yourself just thinking, why, why am I doing this? Um, when, when there's board pressure, there's visitor pressure, there's the actual work that you know needs to be done because you can see where there are gaps weighing over you. Um, but we argue that if you focus some energy on some critical first steps, you'll get further faster, you'll have a sustainable organization, whether it's financially or enthusiasm for the organization, what have you, you'll have everything you need if you take some steps and do them in a certain order, we argue even. Um, and a lot of this plays out in the toolkit, yes, but as I said, we've really kind of honed this by talking with people as well as working in the field um, in small museums where we're the lone soldier um, working with a variety of needs um, and not having the skills to match. Sometimes, because all of us can't possess finance, um, collections care, fundraising skills, governance management skills, and the list goes on in one person, but we yet are expected to. Um, so we argue that if you take this four-part prioritization tool, um, be mindful of the world you work in, the community you're in, um, it'll point you toward key areas where to concentrate your energy, time, and money. And with that, I'm going to hand it to Stacy to talk about developing audiences and what's your second one? Did I do that in order? Yes, building an internal coalition. So pursuing your mission only matters if there are people there to enjoy it. Right? That's kind of a pretty obvious thing. And then we've all had the experience of creating a program or exhibit and having hardly anybody show up and feel that frustration. Um, so you know, that's, that's the, the frustrating side of it, but if you can please your audience, if you can leave here with a project that's going to help create some buzz around your organization, that's going to create some goodwill, then you will have the basis, you'll have a product, you'll have something to, something to sell, a reason why your organization is worth supporting, worth working for, and worth moving into the future. So how do you want to go back and do that? Well, you could start something completely new, but it's usually best to build on your strengths, right? So let's do a little inventory. Think back over the last couple of years. Which of your programs have been the most interesting or engaging or well-attended? Feel free to write it down if it's helpful. And think about why that is. And if, and if you're really strong in programming, that's a great place to build. How about what aspect of your collections are maybe most unique or have a most compelling story or kind of give you that wow factor? What's something in your collection that you could really create that buzz about? Think about people visiting your organization. Is there an exhibit that they always stop at? Or something you hear people saying as they leave? You know, I was really surprised. I never knew that. So think about how it is, what people are saying when they're leaving your experiences, your exhibits. And then step back and think about your building. 
is you're building something that people get excited about. You have a compelling building, a, a landmark building. Is it kind of full of holes? And then think about the people in your organization, your volunteers, and if you have other staff members, your other staff members, are your staff members, are your volunteers known for being helpful, for giving good talks at Rotary? Whatever it is that you are already good at, pick a project that builds on those strengths. Think about what you can do that will build on those strengths, and please your audience, build goodwill. Now, some of you may already be meeting your audience expectation with no problem at all. You're like, yeah, we've got that covered. Our real challenge is we want to bring new people into the organization. We're feeling pretty comfortable. We've got our core, core group, but we're ready for new audiences. How is it that you reach out to those new audiences? Well, you don't first create something for them and ask them to come. You start by going to them. Find out where they are. Maybe you're going to develop an advisory group. Maybe you just want to get the people in your town to come. Like you've got sort of your core members, but you want other people to come. You Maybe you want to go to the grocery store, hang out, talk with people about your organization. Figure out where it is this, this new audience is. Identify who they are. Go out to them. Find some, some leadership. Recognize, I was reminded, I went to the um, LGBT uh, talk yesterday, and I was reminded that whatever audience is out there, it's a diverse audience within itself. So if you're picking a new audience, whether it's moms um, or teenagers, that they are diverse within themselves. So you can't just depend on one of them and their opinions. You probably need a couple different folks from a couple different places um, to give you some ideas about where to go and find out where they learn about information because you're going to need to market whatever it is you're creating what it is that compels them, it's almost always food. Food is almost a universal way of selling people on something. Um, but w what is it that is a, a burning need, a burning interest, a burning desire of that group? And figure out w where it is that you intersect with that. Now, you can't just do one program or one exhibit for it to build a new audience. You're building a relationship. And so you want to think about strategically what it is you can actually accomplish. And I, this is a mistake I've made. Um, when I was at the Putnam County Museum, we reached out to the African-American community and did a great exhibit on the African-Americans of Putnam County. And then our next exhibit was local artists. And I got busy with the local artists, and I didn't pay attention to the folks who'd been in my advisory group. And I won't say we lost everybody, but I certainly didn't maintain the audience because I didn't build a relationship with them. So don't, don't repeat that mistake. So if you've got a great product to sell, the other piece of that puzzle, that's sort of a great product to sell to the people outside your organization, you gotta think about the people inside your organization. Your organization is only as strong as the people in it. You may have great collections, but if you can't get them out to the public, if you don't have people to help you to do that, then they're just going to molder there. Building your internal coalition, your volunteers, your staff, if you have them, and your board has got to be a key priority for you. We get so focused on reaching the goal, getting the next exhibit, getting the next program, that we don't think about how it is we're interacting with the people. 
We don't think about how each interaction is building a relationship. And so if you have four frustrated interactions and one thank you, then you are not building a very positive relationship. And I think it's great with your board particularly, but also with volunteers, to build that around the passion for your mission. One of the things we do with board training at my organization is we go around a board and ask folks, why are they there? What are they passionate about about the organization? And they'll share, they'll share stories that are about personal connections or about um, connections to people within the organization. They'll share connections about their love of history or their love of their community, whatever that is. All the elements of your mission are going to be tied up in those individual reasons that people are passionate about your organization. And if you pull all those threads together and you share those stories with each other so they know that not everybody is passionate about your organization because they love history. Some people are passionate about it because it does great things for kids. And that's just fine. And everybody in the board and everybody who talks about that organization should be able to talk about all those reasons to support your organization. But when you share those stories with each other, you get just a little bit closer. I'll also share a couple of uh, techniques from Pat Murphy's chapter on human relations. Human relations? No. Human resources. <laughs> Sorry. Um, to, so just a couple tips she had for building a good internal coalition. One is to host regular meetings with whoever is involved with your organization, usually volunteers, that include both a professional development component and a social component. And social component usually means food. <laughs> so a brown bag lunch or an afternoon tea or a morning breakfast where you can share something about a new things you're doing, new topics, new information about your organization, but you're also providing a social space where that folk, those folks are, feel like they're working together as a team. Also, field trips are good. If you can just get your crew out to another place, you can look at what you um, enjoy about another organization and, and bring home those tips. If you go out to another museum, you can say, ah, I really liked their guest register. I hated the way they hung things on the wall. Do you remember that docent? What did that docent do that was so effective? You can reflect on your own organization as a group and think about ways to improve as a group and create that camaraderie. And finally, you have to say thank you all the time. That is, it, it costs you nothing other than a little bit of breath. And it is what builds goodwill. Offer a couple words of encouragement. Tell people, even when they haven't done the greatest job on something, find something about it that's good and offer that encouragement because that's going to build that goodwill, that camaraderie, and that internal coalition that's going to let you... Um, you know, rally the troops to move things forward and do new things. So I'm going to take you through the third and fourth priority sectors, and I apologize, I've put a cough drop in, so for the recording, they'll know my voice has changed, but it is what it is, so I apologize if I'm not clear when I speak. Um, the third sector that we've identified is, to, um, is solidifying your reputation. I think all of us can safely say we'll always be looking for more financial resources. We need more money. We need more help, what have you. And cultivating these relationships will give you access. Um, those personal relationships will give you access to the funds you need. Um, as you consider, like Stacy's already started talking about, relationships 
consider those that you've built or building and take a moment and consider how people in the community would describe your organization based on those relationships and ask them if you have to. Um, can any of you in this group, I'm going to put you on the spot, maybe offer if you could use one word to describe your organization that you, that you think people would use, what would that be? How would people describe your organization? Yes. What? <laughs> and there's probably a question mark and an exclamation mark behind that. <laughs> what other word might somebody use to describe your organization? Do we have any examples? Have you thought about it? I don't think so. Yes, did you have an idea in the back? No? Yeah? New? New? Opportunities and new. Yes. So if you haven't taken a moment to think about it, that's a critical thing you really need to do. You may do it with just talking with yourself or with others, but you know, if the word you come up with is mysterious or stagnant, you might want to address that. Um, if, you, if you just walk on the street of your town and ask people, you know, people you don't know, how would you describe it, and they come back with mysterious or stagnant or unknown, not for me, um, then you want to take some time to examine that and maybe reframe the message that people have. But maybe they're saying things like it's innovative, it's active in the community, and bravo to you if that's what people are saying. But you certainly would want to build on that strength because those are some positive words that create energy and bring resources to your organization. And, of course, all of us want that for ourselves and our organizations. But there are four ways that we've identified that you can strategically solidify your reputation. And the first one is to make sure... Donors know who you are. Maybe you only have a few key donors. Fine. Maybe you have 500 donors. You can't get to all 500, but there's probably a section of that group that you could get to. They need to know who you are. And it's as simple as getting together one-on-one -on -one for coffee, not asking for money, just getting to know each other, especially if you're new. Um, Maybe it's showing up at other community events and meet and greets. Certainly living within the community where your work is critical to this. If you don't, you need to recognize that your absence matters. So you can still show up at events, um, but you need to be seen as a community member and listen to what people are saying. Make yourself available for questions. Um, people give to people. No matter how you cut it, no matter what pie chart you use, it's always about individuals giving to nonprofits, giving to museums. And so if they know who you are, you're going to increase the odds of them wanting to help you with your financial needs. Um, one of the things I've done where I work now, um, for some reason I wasn't able to do it as much as I wanted to in my previous job, but where I am now, serving on other nonprofit boards has been fantastic. Of course you want to pick an organization you believe in and hope for the invitation, but the other board members you're meeting are also community members and they start to hear how you talk and how you frame your argument and the words that you use. It starts to resonate and if you're consistent, you'll get that message through. The second one is to consider um, maybe a small cap capital campaign to test the waters. Maybe it's a small membership campaign. Set your goals really low, but just see how people respond to your messages and how they give you money. Um, I could give you lots of examples of how I've tried this, but probably the most successful thing was at my previous institution, the General Lee Wallace Study Museum in Crawfordsville, Indiana, um, where we had this building that was falling to the ground, a carriage house project. We desperately needed this space for interpretive space, office space, collection storage space, the list goes on, um, and it was in bad shape. And without 
a truly solid and known donor base, we were able to amass um, $250,000 for phase one and phase two of this project. Not the best way to go about fundraising, not having a donor base, but I can tell you we pulled it off because we got serious about grant writing, but we also got serious about talking to people in the community, showing them what the building looks like, showing what it could look like, getting all the proper experts talking together about what it could be. And within three years, three and a half years, we had successfully raised that money and um, finished the project. So then we could point to the success. Look what we did. Yes, $250,000 was quite a bit of money for our community, but a lot of it was grant dollars. Um, we didn't anticipate needing that again very soon, but we kept the conversation going about other ways you can give and make a difference. So testing the waters is great way to get started. The third one is play close attention to the messages used to describe the museum. Read what people are writing in the newspapers online about you. If they're not saying anything about you, that's also an informative message. Uh, there's a complete absence. But also you can feed that message through regular press releases, control that message, um, meet with local um, um, journalists, um, column writers, whoever in your community is writing about organizations and um, current events. Spend time with them and get to know them so they know they should call you when something's going on or they should call you if they have bad information. I'll never forget arriving at my institution where I work now. It was, quite frankly, an organization in crisis. And I had started in, I don't think I've told you this, I had started in June, and by December, I hadn't had too, too much time to build relationships with, with um, the media people in my community, but they knew who I was, and I knew who they were, and I got a call for someone who I really respect is writing, calling to say, I heard a rumor that the, that the museum's closing. Whoa, really? Because I just moved here. And I just passed a budget that works. And where did that come from? Well, there were some disgruntled people that had been part of the organization before when it was having problems, and they were just spreading rumors. So I knew that we needed to get on it about messaging. And, and we ended up following up with an interview later so he could see how great things. And it was so wonderful because not a week later, we had a gift that came in unexpectedly to our annual fund of $50,000. And so we put a press release out about a significant gift that said, you know, very reading through the lines, there's donor confidence in what we're doing despite what you're hearing on the streets. And I never got a call like that again. But being responsive and paying attention will take you far. Um, and the fourth one is really the easiest, easiest one, and it's the most obvious one. Um, and I may sound overly simplistic, but now you know a little bit about me. Um, be kind to everyone. <laughs> it's sometimes it's really hard after um, a difficult day dealing with issues, and then you have to run to the grocery store, especially if you're working in a small community, and you're probably not in the best of moods, and you run into somebody that, you know, has just given you a gift, and maybe you didn't get that thank you letter out fast enough, and you've got to, you really got to find a way to fall all over yourself to be kind to them and show gratitude. Maybe you're, you know, I swear the worst times was daycare drop-off, running into somebody as you're trying to get your child situated and then off to work because you're late for a meeting or you've got a school group coming, bearing down on you, and there's somebody in the cereal aisle telling you how much you suck. So um, you have to be nice in those moments, um, and it will take you far. You have to be the bigger person because they will remind you constantly about what your weaknesses are if you let them. Um, and it can be a drag but it will will turn it around for you in the end. 
And the last one I'm not going to spend too much time on assessing and planning because I, I think I can point you to some resources and I, certainly your handouts point you to resources. But a critical thing um, to consider as you're prioritizing work is to spend time assessing and planning. You have to do it. Of course, this process we're going to give you here in a second is a form of assessment and can lead to planning. Um, but there are also some incredible tools out there. Lucky for small museum folks, there are affordable tools out there. Um, hopefully at this conference you've heard a great deal about steps. Raise your hand if you haven't heard about steps. Oh, thank God. So I won't go on and on about it. Um, but it's certainly affordable um, one-time membership fee to do some self-directed assessment toward best practices and prioritizing work. Um, another one is the Museum Assessment Program that is produced by the American Alliance of Museums. Who has not heard about MAP? Oh, you're so informed. This is awesome. Seriously, in previous groups, there's a lot of people that just don't understand but these practically free services. So this is great to see that you're aware. Um, and then the other one I wanted to mention is the Conservation Assessment Program. Is everybody aware of that one? Who's not heard of CAP? Hmm, what does that mean? I don't know. Well, <laughs> just to clarify what that one is, it's a similar assessment process, but instead of a peer reviewer, I mean, technically, that, I guess everyone's a peer, but um, it's not the same format. What CAP does, it's administered by Heritage Preservation, and you can receive funding to bring in a conservator, and if you're in a historical property, you can bring in a preservation ex expert and an architectural historian, someone qualified to do the work, to advise you around more... Um, um, scientific, if you will, metrics about your climate control issues, your temperature, humidity, what you can do to do some um, work on your building, and so forth. They're all amazing resources. We could debate for hours about which one to start with. It's based on what your, your comfort level is. So for me, coming into a small institution, I have a very strong background in collections care. My master's program was run by a conservator, so everything was collections-based. So I start with the cap, because I know I want a conservator, and that's what I want to do. But that's not often where people start. They'll start with steps. They might start with MAP, institutional assessment. It's knowing what your organization needs. But once you have those assessments in place, you have leverage for funding. You've got it. Grant after grant after grant, I've been able to secure through these type of assessments, being in, in the attachments, so-and-so said we need to do this, this is how they've quantified how we'll achieve it, and I need this money, and you get it, you really do, and you can't give up if, it, if um, you have a couple of failures. Try, try, try again, but those assessments will really give you the leverage you need to secure funding for important projects. Um, and certainly from those assessments, you have everything you need to start getting serious about strategic planning, which is another topic that I can go on and on and on about, and I won't, but I won't. Um, the toolkit does address it, and I've also written a technical leaflet for ASLH about how to do it yourself. You don't have to. It's great to bring in a consultant to facilitate it. There's a whole lot of reasons why. But if you just don't have any money, you can't quite get all the buy-in you need, and you need to figure out how to plan on your own, there are ways you can do it yourself. Um, and I will happily talk to you about that um, later, if you'd like, about how to get started. But certainly going through an assessment process, formal like MAP and CAP and other ones are, it starts to get people thinking about how to plan and move the organization forward. And with that, it's time for the activity. Um, you can have that now. Taking the reins. Why don't you go ahead and we'll hand it out. Um, so what my experience of in coming to conferences is that I have a long list of 
projects I want to go back and do after I've been inspired by what's going on. And so on these sheets, you have room to list 10 different projects that you think you want to do when you head back. Or they might be 10 projects you already knew you wanted to do before you got here, but 10 possible priorities. So go ahead and list those out. And then after you've done that, take a look at each one and ask yourself, will this help me develop my audience? Will this help me build my internal coalition? Will this help me address assessing and planning? Will this help me solidify our reputation for fundraising? Can I use this project to address any of those high priority um, areas? Sure. Will oh, you pick up? But there it is. And actually, the check boxes that are there on the right are the are the four areas. So just start by listing out those projects first. All the possible things you might want to do. All right, we now enter the math portion of the afternoon. So if you look down your, actually, you can estimate. Yeah. I'm not going to make you actually count. So look down your audience column. Look at the boxes under audience. About how many boxes do you have checked there? And then look down internal coalition and reputation and planning. Which one of those has the most most checks. So raise your hand if audience has the most checks. Raise them high. Raise them high. Woo! Has the very most checks. Internal coalition? One. Reputation? Oh, a couple four there. How about planning? One planner. Only one planner. All right, well, that's, that is helpful for us in terms of our next piece of the puzzle. But um, before we move on to that, look at each of your projects. Is there any of, any of your projects that hits three or even four of those priority sectors? Raise your hand if you've got one that does that. If you, if you have one, uh, I just want you to share one example of something that helps you get three or even four. So, Kaylee, you had one that hits three or four? So a, ch a changing exhibit might help you hit that. Anybody else got a different kind of example in the back? Doing a strategic plan, you might... Build your internal coalition, set yourself up for fundraising, plan, uh, and even develop your audience right there. All right. Anybody else have one more example they want to share of some a project that might help them 
Right there. Well, look at those that have, you know, three or four checks. And kind of according to our methodology, something that helps you advance in three or four of these areas is a great top priority project because you need to build on all of these. So rather than choosing your favorite project, which might have ended up in the other column, um, or, you know, maybe it's audience, it's audience, you know, like you like audience stuff and that's fun stuff, but maybe something that helps you hit audience and building your internal coalition and improving your reputation that's a great project to work on because it's going to move you forward in all those areas. You're not going to have to do four different projects. So think about that as your top priority project. And then on the back of your sheet, write down the roadblocks you face in addressing that project. And you have 90 seconds to do that. So while some of you are finishing up your roadblocks, how many of you had a project on there that doesn't hit any, that just hit the other category? Did anybody have a project that just hit other? Anybody else? It's not going to be your best project. It's not going to help you move forward. It may be something you really want to do. And, you know, you can kind of hold that in reserve. And when you've got time, because you have lots of time, that's a good project to work on. But really... Something that's not going to move your organization forward in these four areas, it's just not helping you in the long term. might be a fun project to do, but it's probably not the most strategic project. So what we're going to do is break you up into two groups. Uh, I think we'll go generally, since we given what was there with the priorities, we'll have the folks who are really interested in dealing with audience issues come on this side, and the folks who are really interested in dealing with reputation issues come on that side. And if you were somebody who was in between, feel free to pick a group. And what we're going to be doing in those groups is sharing a little bit about your project and getting some help to address the roadblocks from each other. That's the plan. So our time has come to an end, and you guys have been having really good conversations, and I feel like everybody's been extremely productive. <clears throat> so I'll just sit down. So, <laughs> uh, so I just want to wrap us up really fast, but you can certainly sit and talk with each other all you want. Um, Stacy and I just have places to be. So <laughs> you don't want to be forced to stay here all day. But, but there's one thing we want to point out that is extremely notable about how these groups end up dividing. Always, 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 every time we do this, people pick as their top, top things audience and reputation. Isn't that interesting? But we would argue that you can't get very far with those without an internal coalition. You have to strengthen that core. You have to have people helping you. Um, so it's almost like there's another starting point within the starting point. So just think about that a little bit as you as you take this away. Um, the last thing I want to do is just point out the handout that we've given you that gives you some of this overview. On the back, <clears throat> we have really put some points together that reminds you or tells you why you are so awesome. As people who work in small museums, there are seriously wonderful qualities about people who work in small museums. It takes a special type of person, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that at all. One of the, one, I'm just really quickly going to go over these for you, um, if I can remember. Here we go. 
So one of the things about being a small museum leader or a small museum um, professional is that you can be and are quite often a consensus builder. You can work with groups of people to get to a solution. And sometimes you do it faster than others. And so finding that common ground is a wonderful skill that you often possess working in a small museum. You can also say yes to people while saying no. Because if you said yes to everything, you'd never do anything. Um, so being able to navigate the yes and the no and still make people feel supported and validated in their ideas is a gift of a small museum professional. You are able to make the case for the museum anywhere you are, where, where, wherever you're at, at the grocery store, daycare, drop off. You can, you're living it all the time. You know how people are reacting to your mission because you're front line sometimes as well as back of office sometimes at the same time um, because you're the only person there. So you can make a case very strongly better than anybody else. Um, and you are someone probably who can change focus quickly and come back to it back and forth, back and forth. You may in the morning start out writing a press release, but at 10 o'clock, here comes the school group. You're going to take them through. Oh, they left and the bathroom's broken. So let me call the plumber. And then you're going to go grab lunch with a banker who's thinking about making a gift. And then, oh, I've got a board member coming in at four who really has an attitude problem. I'm going to see if I can fix them. That's a lot of changing focus, and it is a skill set. And that is something small museum professionals are really good at. And most and related to that, and very importantly, is that you're a generalist. Once you succeed, quite frankly, as a small museum professional, you make this museum have a mark in your community, moving on to your next organization, you're so qualified. You're so qualified to take on a different job because you have touched every area of museum operation. Your friends and colleagues who maybe work in a very large organization and work in one department have a very narrow skill set when they leave there, if that's all they've... I'm not kidding. <laughs> because that's all they've done. But you have done it all. And if you find yourself thinking you need to move on to another organization, how to sell yourself, focus on that. You have all of these skills and gifts that you've finally honed in a small museum, so you need to celebrate that. So thank you all for being with us today. Hopefully we gave you an, a useful activity. Stacy apparently has something she wants to say as well. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to point out that you do have a resource list on your table, three books, three blogs, three websites. We know that's as much as you could possibly use in a year. There you go. It also ha it includes our blog for the Small Museum Toolkit, where we have posted this question, this idea about this internal-external divide that we've seen. And if you have responses, please feel free to let us know. Thank you.